Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Oh, this weird, weird echoes. echoes. Yeah. Whoa, Whoa that's, that's so, so creepy. creepy. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, little a little bit, bit futuristic. futuristic. I, guess I guess it's appropriate, appropriate for uh, <laughs> Tesla. Oh, hello. We're good. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston, Dara Lind, and we are going to, um, I don't know, politics is a little bit on a break. Everybody's waiting for the storm. We don't really know what's happening with hurricanes. And we wanted to talk about Elon Musk, an interesting character, frequently in the news, intersecting with a lot of important issues, and seemingly melting down a little bit lately. Yeah, and it's funny because there is like, the interesting news that was gifable, and then there's the actual interesting news that was less gifable. So <laughs> on September 7th, he smoked a blunt but did not inhale, which, I mean, what are we even doing here? With uh, Joe Rogan on his podcast, which then caused people to be immediately like, why is Elon Musk smoking marijuana on a podcast with Joe Rogan? But on that same day, Tesla's chief accounting officer quit after less than a month and blamed, quote unquote, public attention on the company and the pace of work. And so if you are an investor in Tesla and the chief accounting officer says that there's too much attention on the company so he can't work there anymore, I personally would be filled with mild dismay. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, it's worth pointing out that as much fun as the internet has had with a gif of Elon Musk smoking a blunt, the dynamic of this news story is what are the investors going to do? It's this weird bank shot where a lot of concerns, frankly, about the well-being of Elon Musk as a human being as well as as a CEO are being refracted through the lens of, well, no one's saying it's our place as the American public to say that you shouldn't be smoking a blunt on a podcast. But we're worried about what the investors will think. It's the same kind of thing that, like, you might hear from a white high school girl who likes a non-white high school boy. It's like, oh, it's not that I'm a racist, but I'm worried about what my parents will think. Well, okay, that that's really deep. Let's <laughs> no, no, no. But it's but like it's it's important to talk about this because we're in this weird. We are in a position as a politics and policy podcast of talking about a star of the private sector whose news right now is it kind of takes the shape of celebrity tabloidism. And yes. like that's a weird dynamic. And it's worth pointing out that it's that the way in which it's laundered is by talking about this as a story about Tesla, this wildly successful electric car company, rather than as a story about like, is Elon Musk prepared for the celebrity of 21st century life? Which but, are two separate questions. Yes. But that's that's what I want to back up. You say like why is this a guy and a set of companies that you might be interested in talking about? on the weeds. And it seems to me that that's because Elon Musk gets his start working at PayPal and with Peter Thiel and and a couple others. He's one of the founders of that company. He makes a lot of money off of it. But then what he's gone into since then is one company, Tesla, that makes electric cars, another company um, that was uh, involved in solar power that he's since merged with Tesla. Then he has a, a company, SpaceX, which does 
space stuff, rockets. Um, and he has also launched what purports to be a tunnel building company called the Boring Company. And he will sort of dash off various ideas that he's going to greatly improve the efficiency of American transportation networks with these boring company ideas. And he has also dabbled in the idea of the Hyperloop, which is a kind of maglev vacuum train. So what's interesting about all this, I mean, I I think these companies exist on a a stack of – like Tesla is very real. Yeah. Like those cars are on the road. It exists. His solar company is not necessarily like – the only solar power company, but it also exists. It's out there. The batteries have a complementarity with Tesla. These are real products. Um, SpaceX is more niche but like also those rockets go up Are real, into yeah. The air. They've, they've had several very public tests. And while they've had some high-profile failures, they've also had some like really interesting successes. Right. And then the, the boring company in the Hyperloop seem sort of made up. They're vaporware, uh, essentially. Right. But, but these are all companies that are dabbling in areas of policy concern, right? right? So, like, space has traditionally been just like the government does it, right? Um, Building transportation systems is something, you know, if the Hyperloop and the boring, if that stuff worked out, it would be like governments are saying, yes, we will pay you to dig these tunnels. Like, that's that's what it is. And And even Tesla and the, you know, the solar stuff, those are both areas in which, especially under the Obama administration, there was a really strong government interest in making there be a robust private sector. (laughs) Right, exactly. So electric cars powered by renewable energy would be the solution to a public policy problem. So if you believe climate change is real, for example, it's like not just of private concern whether a promising electric car company melts down and is weird hidden accounting frauds. Right. Right. And I'd also like to – I think I've got two separate points. One, I think it's interesting that Musk and a lot of other people in Silicon Valley keep doing things that when you drill down to brass tacks, you're like, oh, you're creating a bus or you're creating – a train. And it, it's very interesting to see people be like, no, no, we're totally going to reimagine transportation. I'm like, your reimagining of transportation appears to have taken place in like 1890s New York. But also, I think it's interesting that because of what Musk does, and because I think um, our colleagues over at The Verge, including Elizabeth Lopato, wrote a great piece kind of explaining the difference between uh, Apple CEO Tim Cook and Elon Musk. And Part of the point that she makes is that because Tesla doesn't advertise, it's very dependent on Musk's quote-unquote earned media. Mm -hmm. And so in order for it to establish the sentiment – and the sentiment that Tesla wants to create is of being – I mean it's named after Nikola Tesla. Like the point of Tesla is to be like futuristic and interesting. Visionary AI. Yeah. And I'm just going to quote from the Verge piece. The sentiment matters. Most customers instead follow sentiment. Lately, that sentiment hasn't been great. Tesla's cars are being delivered with flaws. Customer service has been, quote-unquote, a nightmare. And just this week, Tesla scaled back on the colors it's offering for its Model 3. Oh, right. And there's also an embarrassing thing about Tesla crashing itself by backing out of a garage using its summon feature. What's more, Tesla is about $10 billion in debt, hasn't had a yearly profit, and is, as I mentioned earlier, losing a lot of senior talent. Right. So... I actually don't super agree that Musk and Tesla are the same thing as the kind of standard Silicon Valley, like, oh, you've invented a bus. I think it's really useful to contrast Musk with Travis Kalanick of Uber because Uber is kind of was the peak. We're going to make money by just disregarding laws and assuming that everything the public sector has done is totally wrong and screwed up and we're just going to ignore it until like law enforcement literally forces us to pay some attention to the status quo. It appears at this point in time that Uber's business model did not have a whole lot to offer beyond that. Um, But what Musk is doing is saying, okay, here are some problems that Things like maglev trains where the U.S. really is lagging behind other countries, things like renewable energy-powered cars that a lot of people agree it would be a really good thing if they existed, the government does not currently have the resources to make those things exist on its own, but is willing to give money to people who are trying to or like offer incentives to make those things more real. Let's step in. And, you know, it's, it's I think this that has made Musk himself 
you know, it's it's given him a cultural capital that even, you know, much more successful forward-facing CEOs like Mark Zuckerberg don't have, where, like, he gets credit not just for having these wacky ideas, but for grounding them in, look, we're trying to bring humanity into the future, right? Like, you know, he, he ultimately wants everybody to survive on Mars, yada, yada. There's, like, there's an actual vision here that's beyond just making money. But that, I think, is where the kind of personal stress on Elon Musk and the relationship between Musk and the various companies he runs gets really fraught because the fundamental question to me looking at kind of the portfolio of Elon Musk's holdings is like, what makes a company, right? Is a company a product? Tesla is pretty clearly built around, they have this product line that they're working on, that's great. Is it an audience that they're trying to serve, which is not something that Silicon Valley tends to really invest in as like a brand identity? Or is the company a person? A lot of the concern about whether Musk is going to get dumped from Tesla is grounded in this question of, is Tesla a successful idea if Elon Musk isn't running it anymore? Right. And that, I think, is something that we haven't seen in Silicon Valley a lot because it's so assumed that entrepreneurs are their companies. And, and it's really worth thinking about when we're now at a point where this person, like, as an individual, is clearly doing a lot of things that are not directly related to his company and his company's product is struggling. Like, what do we make of the relationship between Elon Musk and the company he runs? And it's interesting because I think that that relationship is really critical because when Elon Musk does something, like tweet on August 7th, funding secured to go private um, at, you know, $420 per share— there was some interest from the SEC about that. And a lot of people decided, you know, Tesla's biggest investor, uh, Bailey Gifford, spoke to the SEC about the go private plan. And the asset manager, James Anderson, said that Musk needs help. And I mean that psychologically as much as practically, because in the eyes of viewers, and I think that it's a fascinating thing, and it's actually in a weird way kind of similar to, but also different from, um, you know, when Trump tweets, Trump will tweet something and we'll be like, Trump tweeted this thing. But then the Trump administration will do something else. Like Trump, <laughs> not very hard on Russia. The Trump administration, pretty hard on Russia. That is not how it appears it works with Tesla, because when Elon Musk tweets something or says something or accuses someone of being a pedophile with no evidence and continues to argue about it on Twitter, which is, you know, like a normal person does. That reflects on the Tesla administration. There's no Nikki Haley of the Tesla administration to be like, hang on, what we actually mean is this. And so there is something worthwhile on having the front person of your company be someone that people want to follow around the internet and people want to watch your interviews on YouTube. The personification of a corporate entity is a useful thing, I think, in sometimes for branding. However, then it goes really, really wrong when that personification is based on a person who now is doing very strange things and then blaming it on Ambien. So let's take a break there, and then I want to dig in a little bit to the specifics of the Tesla financial situation. Yes. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. -P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. 
Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. One of the things to me that makes Elon Musk companies and Tesla in particular appealing relative to the current world of startups is that it we're living in a world where interest rates are very low. They have been low for a long time, where the stock market valuations are very high, where corporations have a lot of profitability, right? And what's supposed to happen in that kind of capital-friendly world is that you get business investment. And then the investment creates jobs and it drives productivity and it, and it drives the economy forward. But what so many companies are doing is they're either like Facebook and Google and their work is immaterial, like, like literally immaterial. So if Facebook decides it wants to invest in something, it's like they buy a couple more desks. But like there's no – there's nothing there. There's no Facebook factory where they make social networks, right? Or you have Apple, which does make physical products. But their profits are just so gargantuan and they do literally nothing with them, right? They pay a huge dividend. They do big share buybacks. They have like $100 billion in the bank, right? And Tesla is the opposite of that, right? Like yeah. Tesla has a lot of revenue. But like building cars is challenging. And it requires machines and, like, metal and whatever you make tires right. out of. All the industries that Donald Trump is trying to reinvigorate in America. Exactly. It's it's tangible. But that makes it risky, right? It means that he can't just go to his venture capitalist one time, get some money, and then go. Every time he has an apparent success, like, more people would like to buy our cars. But then that means you need to make more cars, right? It, quote, unquote, doesn't scale. Right. In the sort of Silicon Valley jargon. And that means that investor community confidence in the company is critical. Right. If people believe that in the future Tesla will continue to grow, then it makes sense to invest in Tesla. And then Tesla is able to keep building the factories that would allow it to grow. Right. But it can only grow if people think it will grow. So the public-facing performance of its CEO matters, like, critically, right? Because, like, I know people I, – I spoke to my, my friendly neighborhood Tesla owner uh, before this and he was like, oh, I wish he would just – What are you, Matt, doing some reporting? I, this is I, awesome. I, I, wish he would, I wish he would just focus on making the cars. Right. And I think that's, like, a common, like, car guy sentiment, right? Is yeah. that, like, he should just chill out and, like, just – work on, like, getting the repair centers running a little bit better. I mean, that's good advice relative to getting high on Joe Rogan's podcast. But, like, it literally doesn't work. Like, right. he, the company needs a front person who creates confidence right. in the existence of the company. And one way to avoid that would be to take the company private. Right? That would be to be off the public markets and have a relatively small number of very well-heeled investors just own the company. Right. Who it's, who it's much easier to persuade at any given time, I know what I'm doing, because all you need to do is call up a few people rather than making all of these public-facing Yeah. It's, it's a meeting rather than like an ongoing public performance. So the idea of trying to do that isn't totally crazy. But normally when companies go private, it's because their stock price is low relative to the fundamentals, right? And then, right, so it's like the public investor community is pessimistic about this company. But you only need to find a couple rich people who believe that the public is too pessimistic and then they become the private owners. But Tesla actually isn't like that, right? It's stock valuation. It's like roughly as valuable as Ford, as a company, even though there are many more Ford trucks on the road than there are Teslas. So it's like he would like the benefits of being private in like not needing to be constantly accountable to the CNBC, you know, world. But 
actually he has done a very good job of the public performance of CEO, at least until the past couple months. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And then you're really not supposed to lie about the financial situation of a publicly traded company. And to say it looks like he's going to get not into any major, major legal trouble with the SEC, but like if funding has not been secured for your move to take your company private, you're like really not supposed to say that it has been. And he does benefit a little bit. You know, sometimes Donald Trump will tweet things and you'll be like, if another politician had done that, right, like right, it would be right. a huge deal. But like with Trump, it's a little baked into the cake. Musk has like said enough loopy stuff yeah. that people don't take it too seriously. But it puts them in this exquisitely delicate position where like just shutting up and doing your job is not an option. No. But his efficacy as a like I make you believe in this seems to be headed downhill. Something else that's important to note is that there is a board of directors that is supposed to kind of keep Elon Musk in check. The issue with Tesla is that Musk is the largest shareholder, the chairman of the board, and obviously the most famous person involved with Tesla. His brother is still a director eight years after the company went public, even though his brother, Kimball, is a food entrepreneur. And in general, every effort by the board to try and do things like split the CEO and chairman role and adopt proxy access, which would mean that shareholders could propose their own board candidates, hasn't really worked. And, like, there's been talk about appointing a, a chief operating officer. That hasn't really worked. Well, but when and, you say it hasn't really worked, like, the board has considered and rejected. Yes, because if the board were a parent and Elon Musk were a teenager, the board would be the kind of parent who says it's totally cool if you drink at home as long as you don't drive afterwards. Which is a type of parenting, but maybe not the ideal type of parenting for this particular example. I mean, or maybe it is, because as Matt said, like, Tesla knows that as a public company, it's going to need an ongoing public performance. And, like, since Musk is so closely tied to Tesla as an identity, jettisoning Musk would really raise questions about, okay, so, like, what are we investing in anyway? But... This is where I want to talk about the headbutting incident, because in a world where Elon Musk goes head down and says, "Okay, I understand that Tesla isn't really about me. It's about the car. I am not super confident that that world actually results in more cars getting on the road. You know, when we talk about the headbutting incident, this is something that happened a while back, but just kind of came out recently that Musk visited a factory and was observing cars rolling down the assembly line and got really upset at a safety sensor feature that stopped the assembly line when somebody got too close and was like, you know, this is slowing down production. He was told, no, this is a safety issue. You can't, you know, there's going to be danger if someone's too close to it. And then Musk went and headbutted one of the cars on the assembly line to demonstrate that it wouldn't be a problem if somebody ran into a car that was moving on the assembly line, that, like, this safety issue was overblown, which is... Like, obviously, both a very eccentric thing for a human being to do and a weird thing to do to one of your products, especially when you have production issues where supply isn't meeting demand. Like, and it also, seems like there would be risks to the car there. Also, when your product is known for having safety issues. Right. For example, with the summon feature, which Musk advertised in 2016, would allow you to be in New York and say, like, I would like my car to come to me and drive itself from Los Angeles. And Musk was like... You know, it should work anywhere, connected by land and not blocked by borders. This will be great. This is a great idea. It has not been great and has uh, resulted in, so far, like, no major injuries or anything. But it hasn't worked quite as well as people have hoped. Well, so. <laughs> the reason I want to talk about the headbutting incident is because, like, it's not just that the car is going through some weird safety issues or that Musk is frustrated with the way that cars are going. Thinking about a safety problem with someone approaching a car on an assembly line is the car will run into someone. That's what happens to pedestrians. That's not what happens to workers. Workers on an assembly line are going to be literally physically engaging with the car in different ways. And it's, you know, it makes a certain amount of sense that a CEO broadly construed is not going to be thinking, okay, what are the minutiae of how a worker is going to be physically entangled with the car? Um, You know, what are like the, the various positions that he could be in? But that's why 
why larger and more complex companies have tiers of decision making where the CEO isn't the one, you know, setting the speed at which the assembly line runs. I think we've seen from a lot of startups that have grown quickly a certain reinventing of the wheel on like mid-century bureaucratic capitalism where ultimately they realize that a large and complex company needs a certain amount of structure and all the decision-making can't be placed in the head. It's not clear that Musk himself understands that that's the stage at which his company exists. Right, but it's not just even the internal structure, right? I think a lot of the the Musk story, right, is that there is a worldview of Silicon Valley that it excels at, right, which is the— sort of greenfield thinking, right? So, like, the whole way of doing business there that has produced some really successful companies and some really important advances is, like, what if instead of doing things the way people do things, we did things a totally different way, right? And that can let you make some achievements that that you can't otherwise achieve. And Tesla is itself an example of that, right? Because the way other companies have been looking at it was, I have a car— This car burns a lot of gasoline. How can I make it burn less gasoline, right? And so you get with that, like, you use lighter metal so it becomes more fuel efficient. Or you get the hybrid engine that Toyota has, right, which a Prius is much more fuel efficient than than a conventional car. But still, those hybrid engines, they start going into bigger cars. They're not themselves per se fuel efficient. It doesn't get you to zero. Right. Whereas the Tesla idea, it's a very Silicon Valley, is like, what if we forgot how cars work and we instead said we are going to make a car that doesn't use any gasoline? And they succeeded, right? Like it's not a car that is affordable and it's not a car that's flawless, but it's a car that's really cool. Like people who are rich enough to buy one seem to enjoy these cars. Right. And that is what you were not going to get with a conventional business approach that's like, look at the cars we have and how do we make them better? Because it's not better. Right. It's it's not an evolution of existing cars. It's like blue sky. And that's the same thing with the headbutting of the assembly line. But it's a different kind of question. Right. And so the question there is like, how do you run an assembly line? Right. And I think if you talk to the people who run the assembly lines for Volkswagen or for Toyota, they would say like – Not that there is no room to improve assembly line operations, but that the question of how should an assembly line work has essentially been solved long ago, right? right? And like there's a a phrase in the Japanese management, keizen, like continuous improvement, right? And that's like – that's the philosophy of like a Japanese manufacturing company. It's the exact opposite, right? It's just like – Every day, let's think, can we make this a little bit better than how it is before? Running onto the shop floor being like, fuck you with these sensors. I'm going to headbutt the car is like the opposite of that, right? What you're supposed to do, right, is like observe the thing, develop a critique, write a memo to your boss for like how you think it could be changed to be a little bit better. And then they can evaluate it, right? But he wants to – reset the deck, not just on, like, how do you design the engine, but on, like, how does this run? Like, is it actually important that the cars not collide with the workers? And it's even conceivable that on some level he's correct, but it doesn't work, right? Like, there's a reason why these other companies are software companies fundamentally, right? Because, like, sometimes Twitter just breaks, right? Or, like, Slack was down for an hour the other day, but nobody dies. Right. 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 When you have like large objects moving through the physical world, for better or worse, like we treat them with a great deal more conservatism. Right. And I I think it's interesting because the thing that comes to mind when I think about the assembly line incident is Fordism, which is kind of the – obviously the assembly line first came from slaughterhouses. But Henry Ford's whole concept was, one – Why don't we just have a process that works the same way every single time so that unskilled workers finish a product by adding just a little bit at each time? And then by the end, the time you get to the end of the assembly line, you have a completed vehicle, which was a magical concept in the early uh, 20th century. But and also came with that was like, oh, the workers should be paid enough to be able to afford the car. That's also part of Fordism. And it's interesting because I think that the notion of disruption has really been, in some views, like weirdly fetishized. Like, why don't we disrupt this market? And, you know, there are certain things that should be disrupted. Like how things work does not need to be how things work forever. 
However, <laughs> there is a reason why you have to stay a certain distance away from vehicles moving down the assembly line. There is a reason why, in general, one does not just make rapid decisions late at night on Twitter about the financial stability of one's company. And I feel as if this idea that things need to be disrupted simply for the purpose of disrupting them, not for fuel efficiency, not for doing more to stop climate change or help the environment, but just for the point of doing it. Like, there is something to be said about, like, no, there are certain things that, you know, and especially with vehicles that have probably the most direct impact on everyday life. There is a reason why these practices have been around for such a long time, and they don't need to be disrupted. This is a critique that we are not the first people on the planet to make, although that doesn't mean it's not true, of this generation of tech entrepreneurs. And I think it's it's more even than the fetishization of disruption. It's the fetishization of naivete, right? Yeah. The idea that someone who is an outsider, who is not coming in with any you know, insider bias or status quo bias or preconceptions is going to be able to find the most efficient way to something. This is coming back to the Joe Rogan thing. This is why Elon Musk smoking a blunt and talking about, you know, if you think about it, the world is just a big ball of lava with a crust floating on top is such a perfect distillation because there's a really fine line between a blue sky idea and like dorm room stoner conversation. Right. Um, and, and that line gets blurred when you think that it's actually better for someone who doesn't have as much exposure to the way things work now to come up with ideas for how things could work in the future. But it's interesting. Remember what, when we had no copy editors? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. We, we used to. So for a while at Vox, for a short while, articles would go up with no copy whatsoever. And then for, for some amount of time, there was a peer copy edit system, which meant that we were saving money by not having a full-time copy editor, but also meant that a bunch of people who had been hired for our, like, writing skills were now being asked to do this thing that was related to, but crucially not the same as the thing we had been hired to do. It is, it is remarkable the degree to which writing and editing are two separate things. Right, right. And, and, and we had to do it, you know, in this very fast amount of time because we wanted to be getting these articles up on the internet almost as soon as they were written. So extremely close reading of Vox.com would have noticed that around November or December 2014, suddenly we went from having articles with very poor copy to articles with consistently very good copy because we hired a full-time copy editor who subsequently instituted a process of, you have to let us know when you are writing things, and then we will read them before they go up on the site. But the really interesting thing listening to kind of the contrast between what you were saying, Matt, and what Jane was saying is that it's not like continuous improvement is alien to Silicon Valley as a culture. It's just, it's called optimize and iterate there, right? Like, it's not like, you know, there isn't a concept of measure everything, look at the ways that you can continue to, like, hack the processes to improve them. It's just that mindset is something that people tend to exercise in their own personal lives, where professionally there's still this fetishization of what Facebook famously said called move fast and break stuff. Like, you don't have people moving fast. Well, you do have people moving fast and breaking stuff in their personal lives, but that's where you get the kind of concerns that people have now about Musk. It's considered much more healthy to track your sleep patterns and make sure that you're getting, like, the proper amount of sleep each night. But then when you have the car on the assembly line, rather than tracking the car on the assembly line and making incremental improvements to it, you're questioning the concept of, does the car really need to stop at all? Right. It's interesting because um, our colleagues over at The Verge made that comparison between Elon Musk and Tim Cook. And this past week, Apple had hits, you know, hooray, new iPhone presentation, which as people who follow this world in any sort of way means that for about an hour earlier this week on Twitter, all people just kept saying was, it's bigger? Sure. <laughs> Which yeah. got very confusing. But The Verge made the comparison that, you know, the Apple event he served as hype man for was almost a painfully controlled presentation. And that is a message being sent to investors and to the populace at large. Like, we are not moving fast and breaking stuff. We are moving at the exact pace we should be based on the current regulations, based on the rules, based on the great deal of research we have done. We are going to introduce this product. And then around this exact time next year, we will introduce another product and you will buy them and you will like them or you won't like them, but you probably will like them because but, you'll just get used to it. Right. But I mean, Apple's success now oh. is built on 
their sort of dependability with this. Like each year they come out with new phones. They find ways to like make something that's a little bit more expensive than the last thing. You know, they produce these things at a scale and pace that like is mind-boggling and like is such a, a logistical challenge that Tim Cook conquers year after year. But the whole reason they're in a position to do this, right, is that one day when everybody felt they knew what a mobile phone should look like, they came up with a mobile phone that didn't look like that at all, right? And it had, like, big flaws, right? When it first came out, I mean, I remember a lot of the reaction was, this is amazing, this is super cool. But a lot of the reaction was, this is insanely expensive, right? It was much more expensive than previous phones. And and you can't even typing a phone is the other thing. Like, there was this weird, like, why do they call it a phone when you can't make very good calls on it? Right. The phone calls were bad. The typing experience was worse than on the BlackBerry physical keyboard, right? It was a true example of, like, blue sky thinking, right? And, of course, you know, like the first one, it's not like that many people bought it, right? But as it went on, right, computer chips reliably improve over time. So it became more and more compelling to have this pocket computer because at first it was like, here's a $700 pocket computer and it sucks, But, like, each subsequent year, the computer got better and better and better. And it turned out that having a $700 pocket computer is really, really compelling, like, more so than having really good audio quality or, like, comfortable thumbs on on a keyboard or something like that. But, you know, successful companies, for better or worse, have all found these kind of moments. I mean, in in Apple's case, it's it's because Steve Jobs died um, in – Facebook's case, it's because they, like, brought on a more seasoned business executive to be Zuckerberg's sort of number two, and then he learned more about running a business from her. In Google's case, they swapped CEOs a few times, yeah. kind of like t- tag teaming. But, you know, it's it's become a sort of established pattern, right, that, like, companies need to innovate and then eventually have someone who's more like a professional Right. runs a company person, either take over or assist or, you know, do something because there's there's just a big difference between like outlining a visionary idea and pushing people really hard to come up with, you know, a, a version one and like operating something that, that works reliably forever and ever. I think, I think that we need to take another break, yes, right? We do. Yeah. And then we should probably get into this more. Yes. So something I want to bring up that's interesting is you mentioned Steve Jobs. You mentioned kind of the the pasts of these companies. And something that is a unique challenge, and I know it seems obvious, is the fact that Elon Musk is operating in a world in which people will talk about what he does on Twitter and everywhere else is a challenge that Steve Jobs did not have. You know, the notion of – obviously – CEOs of companies being public figures is a long-held tradition, as is CEOs of companies being eccentric is a weird way to put it. But let's go with eccentric because I think that that's the term we're using. You know, Henry Ford managed to be both a genius and a rabid anti-Semite, which was something, you know, if Henry Ford were around in like 2008, might have, you know, Oh, there'd be some takes. There might have come up. Are buying Fords problematic? I am extremely not convinced that these two are in any way in conflict rather than an expression of the kind of perfectibility slash exclusionariness of middle class progressivism in the early 1900s. And boy, I would love to do a podcast just about this. (laughs) Finally, my incredibly hot takes about Woodrow Wilson would find a place. But anyway. I always appreciate the more academic tone on the Friday weeds. Uh, (laughs) But it, it, it is an interesting challenge because we think of... Tesla is not operating in a vacuum. Tesla is relying— But the Hyperloop is. Well, yes. Tesla is relying (laughs) on our perceptions of it. In fact, you know, it's been mentioned that because Tesla does not advertise, Elon Musk is what they have. That is their selling point. What he says or does— And look at all this free media. Exactly. We are part of this. We are—thank you. You know, Elon Musk should be writing us all checks with fancy money. That's the entire point of free media, though, is that they're saving on it. But, like, this kind of raises the question of if Matt—you know, if what you're saying is these are—this is something that, like— companies have kind of had to discover on their own that like each CEO has had to face a moment where the board has gone, we're taking the keys from you or we're like writing an agreement that you only get the keys under certain circumstances or something like that. But there's obviously a short-term incentive to let Musk be Musk. Like 
there's both a who watches the Watchmen problem here, and I think more specifically, there's an ongoing critique of the people who have the money, especially like early seed funders in Silicon Valley, that they're going for a particular kind of boy genius who has demonstrated like fanatical devotion to a single idea and doesn't care about sleeping and doesn't care about social skills and, you know, is an autodidact white boy and that kind of thing. And that one of the critiques that's been raised is that that limits the kind of products that you're likely to see as really visionary. But it also means you're not selecting for people who want to be the CEOs of large established companies. You're selecting for people who are going to feel an insane amount of personal investment in every single thing that goes out under their name, which is why I think the kind of like stress exhaustion stuff that Musk has cited Usually we treat that as a euphemism for they're going through more serious personal issues, but it strikes me as not implausible that someone with that mindset would be freaking the hell out looking at how much they're responsible for right now. But if you have this culture and it, you know, it is important to make clear that this is not a rational economic decision. It's not like people have tested here exactly the kinds of people who give us the return on investment over, you know, lots and lots of data points and lots and lots of decades. It's okay, we had a couple of really big breakthroughs with this type of person, so we're going to continue investing in that. At what point does that become a norm that is wrong? Because once you have companies that really scale and make a lot of money, you end up having to take the keys away from the very people who made you all that money to begin with. I feel like Musk is living down to a slightly unfair caricature of a corporate founder, right? Like a lot of things, right? The narrative that like venture capitalists are excessively into like boy genius, like autodidacts has some basis in reality. But also if you look at the like most successful kind of corporate narratives, right? Like Steve Jobs like messed up his company, ruined his own personal finances, and then had to like rebuild from scratch, like out in the wilderness to again become an incredibly successful CEO. Uh, Jeff Bezos, I saw, was was talking in, in Washington uh, last night, and he was talking about uh, how his daily routine is like that it's really important to get eight hours of sleep every night and that people underrate that, that it's important to like be well-rested and make sharp, correct decisions. I agree with this. Just take tons of extra time and how also he um, has breakfast with his kids every morning. And, you know, that's just like very, very different from like if you watch Silicon Valley on HBO, there's just like these guys in this crazy dorm room and stuff like that. Although it's also, of course, worth noting that like Bezos has – is not only – insanely rich, but has been insanely rich and insanely successful for like a decade. Oh, no, no, right. Absolutely. But I mean, it's you look at the people who have sort of most succeeded here. Um, and Tim Cook like talks all the time about like how it's really important to like not just go do crazy stuff, which I think is the most telling thing about the Musk situation, because like the boring company, the thing he's involved with that I know most about is like mass transit. And the thing that's so crazy about the boring company is that this is a situation, like, we just know that the United States of America is nowhere near the global frontier of tunnel building, right? I don't know exactly why, but it is, like, demonstrably the case that the people who build municipal tunnels in Italy and Spain are doing so for, like, a tenth the cost of the United States, right? And that in France and Germany, they're doing it for about half the cost, um, and China as well. And this is a case where... Whether or not some pie-in-the-sky tunnel thing, you know, could ever pay off someday, there's just huge gains to be made by learning to copy the best practices that exist somewhere. And that means that there's just no particular reason for an American business person who has other things to do with his time to spend his time trying to blue sky tunnel build, mm-hmm. right? Like sometimes in life, it's like good to think about doing things in a whole new way. But like when you know for a fact that there is some much better way to do them that is already being done and that what could really be helpful would be for some diligent, careful people to like – Learn about that. Like, let the diligent, careful people do it, right? right? And, like, go do something else. Because there's this 
tough line to walk with like you have a vision for a new kind of car that seems successful but also there's the logistical problem of building it like like that's hard man like that's like that's the hard stuff so don't pile on like unrelated unnecessary hard problems like that just seems crazy and you just genuinely don't see anybody else acting like that right it's interesting but i feel as if there's something to be said that that craziness and the fact that no one else is doing it is actually part of Elon Musk and therefore Tesla's appeal. Like their stock price has gone up somewhat over the last week or so. And there are many people who are big fans of this purely because we don't see it. You know, purely because, you know, I've seen Tim Cook speak and, you know, it's not riveting but, you know, it's the kind of thing that you're like, oh, you know, he runs a company. Elon Musk going on a podcast and smoking a blunt and, again, not inhaling. Like, that's something you do not see. And I think that there is this notion that we have where something being different is interesting. And it just, you know, that's just how people work. But I also think that that in itself, at this point, Elon Musk could not become Tim Cook. That is not going to happen because part of what Elon Musk is best at is being Elon Musk. And I think that that's an interesting challenge to be so inherently linked, not with just a company, but with a style of doing things that this is kind of baked in now. And there's nothing really the board can do about it. There's nothing really people around him can do about it because it both works and doesn't work. And I think that that's a fascinating challenge. I am not an organizational sociologist, but I think that, oh, 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 I mean, I'm not an organizational sociologist, but I realize that this is, in fact, another iteration of the Max Weber thing that Matt and I keep coming back to on Friday Weeds about charismatic versus bureaucratic leadership. Like, it's not wholly implausible for an institution that is built around a charismatic leader to transition to bureaucratic leadership. It is a difficult problem. And this is, you know, I know that there are people who have spent their careers working on this and who could probably talk about some trends of organizations that successfully make that leap. But I think it is very obvious that it requires a willingness to not be a charismatic organization anymore, right? Like, you need to have an understanding collectively that you want the organization to continue to persist after the person who started it no longer is there or no longer exists or something like that. And that there's a certain amount of kind of conscious culture building that needs to happen and also a greater tolerance for the things that are going to make it less efficient for that person to get what they want because what they want is not what the company is there to serve anymore. I don't know that it is fully baked into the cake that Tesla cannot survive without Elon Musk. I think that we have seen, I mean, look, it would have been very easy for Apple when it was rebuilt under, you know, the return of Steve Jobs to be a Steve Jobs-centric enterprise. Yes. Maybe a little bit less easy because it had existed as a company without him before, but there really were questions when Tim Cook took over for jobs of like whether Apple could continue in the way it has. And while there are questions about whether he's been as good, there hasn't been a like, oh, Apple is dead now because Apple right. was Steve Jobs. So it's possible, but it's difficult. And it requires accepting that you're going to piss off the person at the heart of the organization. I mean, like, Ezra Klein is not Elon Musk at all. <laughs> One of the key differences between Ezra and Elon Musk is that when you guys started a website, Ezra was perfectly willing to not be the person making all the decisions and, like, in fact, now is not editor-in-chief so that he doesn't have to make all of the decisions about stuff and can, like, be interested in the ideas that he wants to do. We had to do things like build a copy desk, not physically. Uh, that would be hilarious. But, you know, institute procedures that made it harder to get everything up on the internet immediately, but that made it possible for the site to run no matter who was sitting at the editor-in-chief desk. I, I also I want to say something because I asked absolutely have to. And I'm aware that it's probably going to bring everyone mildly down. But there are two points I want to make. One is that when we talk about being a boy genius, it's worth noting that Elon Musk is 47 years old. I think that there is something to be said about how we talk about specifically men in tech. Specifically and white dudes. Specifically white dudes. And it's very interesting how 
a 47-year-old man who tweets random things about, you know, setting stock price, rounding up a stock price to 420 because it's entertaining and making strange decisions and tweeting strange things and, again, accusing people of being pedophiles. We treat that as kind of like, uh, you know, like a boyish nature of Silicon Valley when this man is, again, 47 years old. And I also want to make the point that, you know, the people have been talking a lot about the smoking a blunt on a podcast thing. And we just had um, a shooting in Dallas of a young man named Botham Jean who uh, was shot in his own home by a police officer who is now claiming that she thought it was her apartment, which again is her claim. And last night, a Fox affiliate decided it would be a great idea to publicize that there was a small amount of marijuana in his apartment, which one makes no difference to the fact that a young man was murdered by an off-duty police officer who is, again, claiming that it was her apartment. It wasn't. But also this idea that Elon Musk smoking a blunt on a podcast is like, oh, it's a concern for shareholders, but it's also, like, pretty entertaining, and let's, like, like use it for gifts. But, you know, for a young man... Well, the specific thing yeah. is they drug test their employees. Yeah. yeah. Oh, they, the factory. That. They yeah, drug I, test their employees. And also, you know, this was grist for the mill for accusing essentially a dead man of perhaps being culpable in his own murder. But I just I think it's really important to say something about how in these specific ways, how we talk about Elon Musk and how we talk about people who are not Elon Musk or non-white people in general or not men. It's very different and bothersome. It is extremely weird getting back to what Matt was talking about earlier in terms of like companies that scale, that we're talking about someone who, even in the most conservative analysis, is responsible for the well-being of a lot of employees, as if like it is just a celebrity thing and there is no actual consequences for the actions. And this is just a show we're all watching. I think that it is healthier to talk about Elon Musk that way than to talk about Donald Trump that way. But There's a weird cognitive dissonance in which tech CEOs are simultaneously the people who are going to save the American economy. And the thing that we should, you know, we should all be teaching our children to code. We should be teaching them to think like entrepreneurs, you know, because that's the real leading edge. And treating the people who actually do hold those roles as if they have no responsibility and are just free to do what they like because their talents are what is keeping the economy afloat much more than their actual, like, work ethic or professional value or anything like that. That said, this is a function of the culture that has been built. I don't know that it actually does matter all that much if Elon Musk is personally a more sober individual. That says something about the extent to which people who are like Silicon Valley CEOs are swathed in layers of privilege and forgiveness and resources that most human beings don't have. But I'm not sure if Elon Musk is a person who's responsible for others who we're treating as if he isn't, or if Elon Musk actually isn't that responsible for others. Both of those are super weird. Indeed. As a bureaucratic rationalist, I'm going to note that we've got to wrap this one up here. But thanks for listening, everybody. Check us out, of course, in the Weeds Facebook group. Uh, check out the Weeds newsletter, box.com slash weeds hyphen newsletter. Thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Mm-hmm.